The Lord be with you. <coughs> Let us pray. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life, God blessed forever. Amen. Well, welcome back. It has been some time since we have been together to continue our ongoing study of John's gospel. Uh, we had a big break during Christmas and then a big break during January, but we are returning to the subject of John's gospel today. For those of you who don't remember where we left off, we were at the very end of John chapter 8, and today we begin John chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. Just a reminder of what had happened toward the end of John chapter 8. What we see there is a disintegration of the relationship between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. Now, it's important to remember that relationship had never been particularly strong, uh, but we see a growing tension between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees in particular. Now, there were any number of reasons for this. It had all started, of course, with the whole subject of the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus had been performing signs and wonders on the Sabbath. He had healed a lame man, for example, by the pool at Bethesda. And that was, in the minds of the scribes and the Pharisees, a violation of the Sabbath. And so they had criticized Jesus for that. In fact, they actually tried at one point or another to prosecute Jesus. But he had always managed to escape their grasp. But that was really the start of it all. And everything basically went downhill from there. Uh, Jesus did not admit to their interpretation of the law. He said that they were wrong with that, that the law and the Sabbath were meant to be a blessing to man, not a burden. And that's what they had turned it into. They had turned it into a burden with all of their man-made restrictions. And they didn't like the idea that Jesus would possibly question their authority. There were very clear lines of demarcation that existed in the first century, and Jesus was stepping over them. It's a lot like the British aristocracy following World War I. You know, prior to World War I, there were clear lines of division within society, and the nobility really had all the power and all the influence, and anybody that was below them in rank or stature had no right to question them. But following World War I, when young men of every stripe had gone off and fought in the trenches and suffered and many of their friends had died, they came back and they were not about to cowtail to those who were the aristocracy, to earls and dukes and so forth. They regarded their blood is just as precious as the blood of the aristocracy. And so they began to challenge those clear lines. And those who were in power found that to be very disconcerting. They were troubled by it and they pressed back and there was a sense there was a class war. How dare these people question us? Well, that was the same attitude that people had, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees toward Jesus. Jesus had never been trained. He had never gone to any of the rabbinical schools. He had never been formally licensed to preach by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body. And here he was interpreting the law, challenging them. Who does he think he is? So that was part of the problem, the Sabbath issue. There was also the issue of just jealousy. Uh, you've heard me say before, when Jesus talked, it was like E.F. Hutton. 
Uh, people listened to Jesus. People were drawn to Jesus, and they were drawn in large numbers. When he was ministering up there in Galilee, we're told that crowds in excess of 5,000 people followed Jesus. They were captivated by his ability to teach and to preach. In fact, we're told that when Jesus spoke, he spoke as one having authority and not like the scribes and the Pharisees. And so there was petty jealousy. And let me tell you something. Jealousy can be like a cancer. It can eat away at the fabric of relationship. It can make people do all sorts of terrible things. And that was the case with the scribes and the Pharisees. They become intensely jealous of Jesus. So the relationship was disintegrating. And it really disintegrates all the more when you get to John chapter 8. Because not only were they having problems with Jesus over the Sabbath, and not only were they were intensely jealous of Jesus, but Jesus also went on to say some things that they found to be very offensive. Things about them and things about themselves. What was it that Jesus said about them? Well, the first thing that he says about them was that they were in bondage. They were in bondage. Take a look at verse 31. Jesus says, so Jesus, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, there are a whole lot of problems with their retort. First of all, when they said, we've never been the slaves of anybody. We're the children of Abraham. That was just rubbish. Pure and simple. It was hardly any point in the history of the Jewish people when they had not been enslaved, as a matter of fact. I mean, the whole story of the Exodus is about what? Their deliverance from bondage in Egypt. Where for over a century, they had been there making bricks without straw. They've been carried off into exile in Babylonia. They have been carried off into exile in Assyria. Even at that time that Jesus was speaking to them, they were already a vassal state of the Roman Empire. That was what the whole Messianic movement was all about, throwing off the yoke of Rome. We've never been the slave of anybody? That was absolutely ridiculous. Now, of course, Jesus wasn't just talking about physical slavery here. He was talking about moral bondage. He was talking about spiritual bondage. He was talking about the fact that they were in bondage to sin. And oh boy, they did not want to hear that any more than we want to hear it today. Nobody wants to hear the preacher say, you are all a bunch of sinners in bondage. It's amazing. We can sing out with great gusto, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's all right for us to describe ourselves as wretches, but if the man in the pulpit dares to call me a wretch, there's going to be trouble, let me tell you. I learned this early on in marriage, incidentally. <laughs> and my wife told me very early on, you know, she said, let me tell you something, Jeff. I can talk about my mother, but you cannot talk about my mother. And for those of you who may be newly married, let me tell you that is sage advice. Well, you see, that's the way it was here. The reality was they had been in bondage. They'd been in physical bondage. They were in spiritual bondage. They were in bondage to a whole host of things, and Jesus called them out on them. And first of all, he told them that he would set them free if they believed in him. Well, they found that to be equally offensive. Don't tell us that we're in bondage to anybody, and who do you think you are saying that you can make us free? We still bristle at the idea today. We're in many ways no different than the scribes and the Pharisees. And yet that's the unanimous testimony of scriptures, that we are in bondage. We all can relate to it. You know what Paul said, the very things I want to do, I do not do. And the very things I hate, these are the things I find myself doing. O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? I ask this question, you've heard me ask it before, but let me ask you, how many of you can relate to that, that the very things you want to do, you don't do? How many of you can relate to the idea that the very things that you do, you hate? We can all relate to that. Well, that just goes to show it's a verifiable fact that we are all in bondage and we need someone to deliver us. 
Well, that's what Jesus was telling them, but they found it to be offensive. Jesus went on to say this. He said, you're also children of the devil. Now, you can imagine how that went over. Um, that is not the way to make friends or influence people, and yet that's what Jesus said. Verse 34, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do not, and, and you do what you've heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born in sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he who sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Well, you can imagine what that did to the relationship, as I said. Although there was a sense in which it was absolutely true. And incidentally, it's true of all of us as well. Now, we don't like to think of ourselves respectful, upstanding individuals, perhaps pillars of the community. We don't want to think of ourselves children of the devil. That's a little bit of hyperbole. That's an exaggeration. Well, if you think that's the truth, keep your finger there in John and turn for a moment over to Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath." like the rest of mankind. Children of disobedience. Children of wrath. There's this very popular notion out there in the culture, I think it sort of came into fashion probably in the 19th century. I'm not entirely sure when it came in, but it's the idea that it's the, the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. And you often hear people say, well, aren't we all God's children? It's important that we understand that that is not a biblical concept. We are not, simply by inclusion in the human race, any of us, children of God. Now it is true, we are creatures of God. Indeed, we are highly exalted creatures of God. We have been made in the image of God. That makes us unique. That puts us in an entirely different category from any other creature that God has made. But it is unfair and it is untrue to say that we are all simply because we are men and women made in the image of God, his children. The Bible is very clear. We only become children of God by grace, by adoption. You see that in the very opening chapter of John, in that prologue, where we're told that the word was made flesh and he came to his own, but his own received him not. But to all who believed in his name, he gave the power, the right to become children of God. And John says, not by the will of a father, or by the flesh, or by blood, but by adoption. So it's important that we understand that we are not, any of us, simply by virtue of our inclusion in the human race, children of God. We can become children of God, but it's by adoption, it's by grace. It's by a supernatural act of God. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. Born into the family of God. And this is something that comes from above. This is not something that you can choose for yourself. That was a popular, unpopular notion in the first century. It's an unpopular notion today. And yet we can't deny the fact that it's the unanimous testimony of Scripture. So Jesus said these claims about himself that the scribes and the Pharisees were in bondage, they needed to be set free, that he alone could set them free. 
Well, that's offensive to people, that Jesus is the only way. And yet that's what Jesus said, isn't it? Later on in this gospel in John chapter 14, you say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Let me tell you something. You preach that in our culture today, and people are very offended by it. How dare you say that Jesus is the only way? Hey, don't get mad at me. I didn't say it. He said it. <laughs> and yet that's the unanimous claim of Jesus. And I always point out to people, why are we upset about the fact that there's only one way? We ought to rejoice in the fact that there's any way at all. The drowning man doesn't care that a person offers him a stick to pull him out of the water. He doesn't say, no thanks, I'd prefer to wait for a life preserver. He'll take whatever he can take at. And that's the way it is with God. So Jesus makes these claims about them and they are offended by it. But it's not just what he had to say about them, that they were in bondage and needed to be liberated, that they were children of the devil and they needed to be adopted into the family of God. No, it's also what he had to say about himself that they found difficult to swallow. And that is, Jesus makes an outright claim to divinity. He claims to be one with the Father. And that's what we see here at the end of chapter 8. Jesus writes in verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, you probably know that that phrase, I am, was not just a statement about Jesus' own personhood. That was a claim to divinity, because back in the Old Testament, when Moses was called by God in the burning bush at Theophany, we're told that he came close and God spoke to him out of the burning bush. And he said, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to set my people free. And he replied, well, Lord, who are you? I'm going to go to these people and they're going to ask me, what is your name? I mean, the Egyptians believe in all sorts of gods. Who are you if you're the God of your people? And the answer that came back is, I am who I am. When Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. M, everybody knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying, I tell you the truth, you're looking at God. And that was the thing that really put them over the edge. Look at how the chapter ends, the very last verse. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So that's the situation when you get to chapter 9. This relationship is disintegrated to such a degree that the scribes and the Pharisees are intent, not simply on discrediting Jesus, not simply on silencing Jesus. They really are now beginning to plot to kill Jesus. He has to be wiped off the face of the earth. And so Jesus leaves the temple complex, and that's where we pick up the narrative today. Chapter 9, verse 1, And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. What we come to in this particular section of John's gospel is Jesus and what C.S. Lewis called the problem of pain. That is to say, Jesus and the whole issue of suffering. How are we as Christians to deal with this question of suffering? I would go so far to say it to, that of all the challenges that the Christian faith faces, this is perhaps the greatest one. The whole question of suffering and pain and misery in the world. Some people say, oh, the greatest challenge is science and faith. I don't think that's the case. Actually, I think most of the scientific discoveries over the course of the past 100 years have done a great deal to bolster Christianity and belief in the deity. That's not a problem anymore. Some people will say the main problem is secularism. Oh, my goodness, the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist, that's been around for a long time. It just changes from age to age. The face changes, but it's the same issue. But suffering, for many people, that is a real problem. You oftentimes hear people say, well, if God is so good, then why does he allow suffering to occur? It's a difficult question. 
And that's what we're dealing with here in John chapter 9. Jesus encounters this man who was born blind. Now, the first thing to remember is that blindness was a common affliction in the first century world. Jesus heals many blind people. It is somewhat rare for us to encounter people who are blind today. We still encounter them, but they are certainly not as frequent an encounter that we have today as Jesus had in the first century. People were blind frequently. Jesus encountered many of them over the course of his three-year ministry. That was due to any number of issues. First of all, people were operating in an agrarian culture in the first century. This was long before the industrial age. This was long before, you know, all kinds of OSHA laws and restrictions and that sort of thing. None of that existed in the first century. And when you were working in agrarian culture, you oftentimes had to work around livestock, for example. Uh, you had animals everywhere, whether it was cows or oxen or horses or um, donkeys. You were working with those sorts of animals, and oftentimes there were accidents. An animal might kick you in the face, and that would blind you. And so there was that issue. There were unsanitary conditions in the first century, virulent forms of conjunctivitis, trachoma, all those sorts of things that we can treat quite easily with an antibiotic. They were everywhere. People didn't wash their hands in those days. They didn't have antiseptic. They didn't have any of that sort of thing. And so because of the unsanitary conditions or the lack of proper medical care, people were often blinded. And of course, this was also an age of violence. You know, people point out, well, it was the first century, it was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, that is true. But there was still a great deal of violence in the ancient world. One of the ways that the Romans maintained the peace was by force of arms. And then, of course, there was the gladiatorial contest that took place. This was an age of gratuitous violence for sport and people would oftentimes be blinded. So it was not uncommon in the first century to see somebody who had lost their eyesight. The difference here, of course, is that that was not the case with this particular man. The issue here, according to John, is that this man was not blinded in a contest. He was not blinded in warfare. He had not lost his eyesight as a result of an accident or an illness. This man had been born blind. he never seen the light of day. And what the disciples were wrestling with was, why is that the case? What's going on here? It's the same question we ask whenever you see a child who is born with a deformity or an abnormality that cripples them for the rest of their life. Or you see a child who gets afflicted with leukemia at a very young age wonder to yourself, what in the world is going on here? If God is good, why does he allow this sort of thing to happen? And there is this innate longing within every single one of us to try and make sense of what appears to be something that is senseless. Let's be honest, that is true. We have this desire. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God, by the way, to try and make sense of things, to understand how things work. That's what science is all about, trying to understand how things operate. Biology is the study of what? The study of life, how the system works, how the body works, and so forth. We have this desire as human beings to want to make sense. Well, how do you make sense of suffering? Well, any number of answers have been given down through the centuries. Some people will say, well, suffering occurs because you and I live in a fallen world. That is to say, the world in which we live is imperfect because of the fall. And certainly there is an aspect that is true there. Paul speaks of the whole creation moaning as in travail, longing for redemption. So it is true, the Bible does teach that something has gone wrong in the created order as a result of man's fall. Now that is a big question. That's a whole series of classes that we could tackle. But that is one answer that has been given. Well, we just live in a fallen world, and that's why suffering occurs. But while that is an answer, I'm going to suggest to you that it is not a sufficient answer. Another answer that has been given is that suffering is the result of divine retribution. You have done something wrong, and God is punishing you for it. 
If you've ever gone through severe suffering, if you've ever gone through a terrible health scare, that's one of the first questions that people often ask themselves. What have I done to deserve this? Have I done something wrong? Is, is, is God somehow punishing me or punishing my family for this? And there are occasions, incidentally, in Scripture where that is, seems to be true, where God is punishing people for their wickedness. Certainly that is the story of the flood, Genesis chapter 6, where saw that God looked upon mankind and he saw that the desires of the hearts of men and women was only to do evil all the time. Boy, that's a terrible diagnosis, isn't it? God looks on humanity and he sees that every inclination of their heart is only to do evil all the time. And so what does he do? He determines to wipe out the human race and start all over again with Noah. So there are examples of that. And you have people who give that answer today. When Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans in 2005, there were many people who said, well, they were just being punished for their wicked carnival atmosphere. God was cleaning the place out, that Aegean stable. I think it was Pat Robertson who said something along those lines. So people still say that sort of thing today. Whenever you see suffering or pain in the world, well, there has to be a reason for it. It's either a fallen world, and that's why they're suffering, or God is punishing people for their wickedness and their vice. Well, what I want to suggest to you is that both of those may have some partial truth to them, but they are not satisfactory answers. Neither of them is complete. What's the problem with the fallen world explanation? Well, the fallen world explanation explains why people suffer, but it doesn't explain why some people suffer more than others. If we just live in a fallen world and that's why people suffer, let's be honest, we know some people and some families who suffer a great deal more than others. That doesn't explain why that is the case. So I think that is an insufficient answer. What's the problem with the divine retribution explanation? It's because Jesus himself refutes it. He said all, all suffering is the result of divine retribution. That's what today's text is all about. Jesus answers, neither this man nor his parents sinned. And this is not the only time that Jesus says that. Keep your finger in John for a moment and turn to Luke for just a moment. Luke chapter 13. This is an interesting story, one that you're probably not as familiar with in the Gospels, because oftentimes preachers will just pass over it. But chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told him, that is Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or how about those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. These are two incidents. We don't know a great deal about them, but apparently what had happened was that there were a group of Jews who were worshiping. They were engaged in the act of worshiping. And Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of the area, we know about Pontius Pilate, came in and he slaughtered them. Now, we don't know what they were doing. We don't know if they were zealots. We don't know if they had instigated an uprising or whatever it was. But they were Jews and they were engaged in the act of worship. How do we know that? Because we're told that Pilate mingled their blood with the blood of their sacrifices. So this would be like people in worship going up for communion and all of a sudden the police or the army come in and begin shooting people, shooting them down. And they were trying to make sense of this. These Jews were trying to make sense of this and they came to Jesus and they said, how could this happen? What in the world is happening? What is God doing in this situation? Again, trying desperately to make sense of something that was wrong. And apparently they implied to Jesus that it must have been because they had done something wrong. They were wicked. How in the world would God allow this to happen to righteous people? And Jesus replies, 
What makes you think they did anything wrong? And then he refers to another event. Apparently there was a tower in Siloam that had fallen on people and killed a number of them. And the assumption was, oh, they must have been wicked people, and that's why God allowed the tower to fall on them. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, that's not the case at all. You shouldn't be asking, why did they suffer? You should be asking the question, why you don't? What makes you think that you live a charmed life, Jesus says? Well, that was the same situation here. As they're walking along the road, they encounter this man who's been born blind. His plight is pitiful. In the first century, there were no rules or regulations to govern those who were disabled. This man would have been left on the side of the road to beg for alms, and unless somebody helped him in his pitiful condition, he would have died. He would have perished there. And the question the disciples are asking is the question we all ask. Why is God allowing this to happen? There must be a reason. There must be something behind this that we just don't understand. He must have done something wrong. Either he did something wrong or his parents did something wrong. How many of you have ever asked that question? How many of you have ever wondered about that? Well, you're not alone. But Jesus says that is not necessarily the case, that somebody is suffering because they did anything wrong. Now that leaves us asking, well then, is there anything at all that we can say about suffering? Is there any way for us to make sense of this terrible thing that we experience in our life in the same way that the disciples experienced it in their life? What can we say about suffering? Well, let me just say this. There are no pat answers to the problem of suffering. I'm going to suggest to you that there are answers, but I want you to understand there are no pat or simple answers. There is a sense in which suffering and God's purposes in suffering are a mystery, and we just need to acknowledge that fact. We need to understand that we are mere creatures, and God's ways are not our ways. But there are some things that we can say about suffering. The first thing we need to acknowledge is that all people suffer. All people suffer. Nobody is excused from this. The poor suffer, but so do the rich. We talk about the plight of the poor, yes, but that doesn't mean that the rich are somehow immune to suffering, illness, death. The poor and the rich suffer alike. The ignorant suffer. We talk about those who are uneducated and how they suffer. Well, let me tell you something. The educated suffer as well. Their suffering may be of a different sort, but they still suffer. The young suffer and the old suffer. We oftentimes think about people who are old, their health declining, their health problems increasing, death coming to them. And we're always shocked when young people get sick and die. But the reality is that it does happen probably happens much more frequently in other countries than it does here, but it does indeed happen. The black suffer, the white suffer, men suffer, women suffer. And here's one that we need to remember, the religious suffer and so do the irreligious. <laughs> Don't think for one minute that simply because you become a follower of Jesus Christ, everything's going to get better. God doesn't make any promises that you'll never have trouble. Now, that's a brand of Christianity that you hear out there in the culture. It's wealth, health, and prosperity if you follow Jesus. Everything's going to be a primrose path. Give it over to him. Well, that's interesting. That's not Jesus' brand of Christianity. Actually, Jesus said it's just the opposite. Jesus said in this life you will have tribulation. He didn't say you may have it. It's likely you'll have it. He said you will have it. Indeed, he says anybody who wants to be my disciple must take up his cross and follow me. It's an invitation to suffering and die in the Christian life. Now, yes, there is the promise of eternal life beyond that, of joy and ecstasy beyond the grave, but in this life, it is sorrow clothed in the sod. It is struggle, it is suffering, and it is a constant warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So the religious suffer, so do the irreligious they suffer even more because they don't have the promise of eternal life. They don't have that peace which passes human understanding. They don't have the presence, the abiding presence of Christ. So the first thing we need to say about suffering is that nobody's immune to it. 
Nobody. You've heard me say before, every single one of us is in one of three places. You're either in a storm, you've just come out of a storm, or you're sailing into a storm. But nobody, nobody avoids the storms of life. And I've got news for you. Probably not what you want to hear on a Sunday morning, but ain't nobody getting out of here alive. So that's the reality. Suffering is something that comes to all. Now, what are the causes of suffering? Theologians have generally pointed to two sources of suffering. The first is what is known as moral evil. The second is what is known as natural evil. I would go so far as to say that the vast majority of the suffering that you and I see in the world today is the result of moral evil. That is to say, it is the result of the decisions of men and women. The sinful decisions of men and women. Uh, this is what you see happening in Ukraine, in Gaza. This is what happens when you see sex trafficking on the news or elder abuse. People say, oh, well, why would God allow that to happen? Listen, God didn't cause those things to happen. Wicked men and women cause those things to happen. There's no use blaming God for that. Those are the results of men and women. Now, somebody might say, well, why doesn't God stop it? I'll tell you why God doesn't stop it. It's because God cares too much about your freedom. God has given us choice. He's made us free moral beings. You and I have the ability to choose. We're not automatons. We're not robots. That's the only thing that makes love possible, you know. If God created a bunch of beings who could not disobey, love would not be possible. But he gives us free choice. But in giving us free choice, there's a great risk because we can use that choice, what? Either to follow him or to rebel against him. We can use it for good. We can also use it for evil. And we need to understand, we need to understand that the decisions we make either way will have consequences. And those consequences do not affect us alone. If God were to simply wipe away the consequences, that is to limit our freedom. We will, we will make choices and those choices will affect other people and we need to understand that. And anybody who thinks that's not fair needs to grow up. A mother who's an alcoholic and she's pregnant may pass on fetal alcohol syndrome to her child. That's not God's fault. That is the fault of the mother. So we need to understand that much of the evil that we face in the world today is a result of human decisions, the vast majority of it. And it brings untold suffering to the world. Now, there is that other category of evil, and that is what is known as natural evil. Uh, this is what we see in hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes, and that sort of thing. Those things also bring misery and suffering to the world. And we see that sort of thing, natural disasters that take place and people that are suffering as a consequence of that. I think in many ways this is a harder nut for us to crack because we want to know why would God even create a world like that? Why didn't God create a better world where those sorts of things don't take place? Well, that begs a serious question. That begs the question, could there be a better world? See, we assume that there could be a better world, but we don't know that. You know, for example, when earthquakes occur, what is happening? Tectonic plates are shifting, and those shifting of tectonic plates is absolutely essential to life on this earth, although it does cause from time to time untold suffering and misery and death. So when we ask the question, well, why couldn't God have made a better world? What do we mean by better? We simply don't know. And yet we ask the question, well, isn't it meaningless? Well, I would ask, is it really meaningless? I, I don't deny the fact that there are times when suffering as a result of an earthquake or a tsunami or suffering that is a result of moral evil, it seems meaningless. But just because it appears meaningless to us doesn't necessarily mean that it is. I mean, doesn't the New Testament say we see through a glass darkly? I mean, God is God. He's the creator of the cosmos. He's infinite. You and I are finite. 
How can we expect to understand? There may be a purpose actually in suffering. God may actually have meaning in the pain and the sorrow that we experience in this life. Just because there doesn't appear to be a purpose doesn't mean there isn't one. Imagine somebody from a third world country who has never been to the dentist being taken into a dentist's office and seeing a child in the dentist chair getting a shot of Novocaine and having his cavity filled. All of a sudden, the child is screaming and wriggling and crying, and that person thinks that this person with these sharp implements and that drill that is whirring, oh my goodness, they're torturing that child, but actually they're not. The pain that that child has experienced is actually what? For their benefit. So I think we have to acknowledge the fact that yes, there is suffering and there is pain in the world, but we also have to acknowledge that we may not understand what God is doing in the midst of it. It may be for our good. And that is why the Bible's primary concern is not with why God allows suffering, but rather what God is doing in the midst of suffering. I pointed out earlier that all people suffer, and that is true. It's undeniable. But Romans chapter 8 reminds us that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. So this is very important. While all people suffer, the promise for the Christian is that we suffer for a purpose. Let me repeat that. All people suffer... But the Christian suffers for a purpose. God is using their suffering ultimately, ultimately for their good. What are the good? Well, I would suggest to you three things that God may be doing in the midst of suffering. The first thing he may be doing is correcting us. Some suffering is for corrective purposes. It gets us back on track. The consequences of our own action can cause misery to ourselves and to those around us. But that can also be a megaphone, as C.S. Lewis says, to rouse us from our slumber, to realize that we've gone off track, that we've veered away from God and we need to come back. And sometimes suffering will do that more than anything else. Doesn't mean that God is causing the suffering, but it does mean that God allows the suffering to come into your life and he can use it for corrective purposes. That was certainly the case with Jonah. This is why the author of Hebrews says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, for he disciplines those he loves. Every parent who is a responsible parent disciplines their child when their child, what? Veers off the path. And if we spare the rod, we do what? Spoil the child. And we know that to be true. We know that. So some suffering is for corrective purposes. Some suffering is for constructive purposes, to build us up. We know this to be true as well. Sometimes it's the people who have suffered the most who do the most, who by the grace of God rise above their circumstances to do extraordinary things. I think about Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a man who was afflicted with polio and was crippled for his entire adult life, and yet he went on to do extraordinary things and to lead this nation through the Depression and through the Second World War. And the question is, would he have been the man who was capable of doing that if he had not endured great hardship and suffering over the course of his life? It was that hardship and suffering that molded him, shaped him into the kind of man who was able to endure to the end. God can do that with us if we're Christians. Yes, if God is correcting us, it's because he loves us. Parents correct their children because they love their children. And sometimes suffering can build us up in a way that nothing else can. All of you know that I came from St. Helena's in Beaufort before I came here. I've used this illustration before, but I had a parishioner who was the second in command at Paris Island. He was a colonel, and um, he said, have you ever been out there when the recruits arrive? And I said, no. And he said, um, I thought he was recruiting me, and I was like, I'm not going. Um, but he said, I want you to come out sometime and see what happens. Well, these kids arrive on these buses. Sometimes they arrive on train in Yemassee, South Carolina, and they pick them up on these buses, and they bring them down to the recruit depot, and they're there, they got their hoodies, and they got their pods in their ears, and you know, they got their high-top tennis shoes and their ripped jeans, and they're on there, and they get there, and the first thing that happens 
is a drill sergeant gets in their face. <laughs> and the look of sheer terror on their faces. I was there, they have to get out, and they get out and they stand on these footprints that have been painted, and there's just somebody yelling in their face, and then they're taken in, their heads are shaved, and let me tell you something, for the next several weeks, they will tell you they are suffering. They are terrified. They're in misery. Some of them try to escape. They'll even swim through alligator-infested waters to try to get out of there. It's no lie. It's no exaggeration. It is terrifying. You ask those guys two weeks in, are you suffering? Yes. Is it to any purpose? No. <laughs> Until the end. When they receive the Eagle Globe and anchor and become part of the largest fraternity... Once a Marine, always a Marine. You ask them, was the suffering worth it? Oh, you better believe it. You know, God can do that in your life, and oftentimes he is doing that in your life. So God can use suffering for corrective purposes. He can use it for constructive purposes. But in this particular instance, we're told God was using it for God-glorifying purposes. We have to remember that sometimes God is allowing suffering to come into our lives so that you and I can bear witness to him. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians that we are not our own. He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Christ bought you. He redeemed you. He says, honor God with your body. And sometimes honoring our God with our body means that we will suffer. Because it's in that context that we can bear witness in a more powerful way than any other way to our faith in him. It's easy to follow God when everything is going your way, isn't it? Nobody is particularly impressed by that if you've lived a charmed life. But let me tell you something, when you suffer, and you suffer and you give the glory to God in the midst of that, like Daniel in the lion's den, like the three Hebrew youths. Oh, king, you can throw us into the fire. You can throw me into the lion's den. But I will not renounce my God. Like Job, who suffered but never sinned, never cursed God. That is the most powerful witness of all. I think about Fanny Crosby, who was born blind, the great hymn writer. Somebody said, are you sad that you were born blind? And she said, no, because the first sight that shall ever gladden my eyes in heaven will be the sight of my Savior. What a witness. How many of us could say that? That's what Jesus says about this man. This man was not born blind because his parents had sinned. He, had sinned. he was born blind that God might be glorified, that I might come along on this day and touch him and heal him, and he might be an inspiration down through the centuries to this very day that I am the one who makes the blind to see, the lame to leap for joy, who raises the dead and does all things well. The Westminster Catechism asked this question, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end, the answer is, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Think about the disciples when they were brought in before the Sanhedrin following the resurrection and they were flogged and beaten because of the name of Christ. And we're told that when they were released, they went out, their backs flayed by the lash. They went out rejoicing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. And in so doing, they brought glory to God. So if you're going through a tough time, and if you're not, you will. I want you to understand, if you're a believer, God is using that pain, that suffering, that hardship, that disappointment, that loss, that sorrow in your life. I can tell you, it is not for nothing. He's either correcting you and bringing you back on the path so that you can have eternal fellowship with him, or he's building you into the man or woman that he wants to do, just like an artist, a sculptor who is taking those blows and taking off the chips from the block in order to fashion it into something beautiful. That is what God is doing in your life. He's doing that to make you into the man or the kind of woman that can make a difference in the world. 
where God is giving you the greatest privilege of all, and the greatest privilege of all is to bear witness to him in a way that nobody else can. Now here's one final thing to say about suffering. The day is coming when suffering itself shall cease. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. Last book of the Bible, last word. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. John has this magnificent vision of a new heaven and a new earth. And he writes these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Those words to people who live in the low country are troubling. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth and the sea shall be no more. We love the sea. Most of us retreat to the sea. But you have to understand to Jews who were landlubbers, they were not a seafaring people. The sea was a symbol of sorrow, upheaval, pain. And what we're being told there in Revelation is that the time is coming when God himself will wipe away all of that. Right now we suffer. Right now we experience pain, disappointment, sorrow, hardship. But the time is coming if you're a believer when God himself shall do away with all of that. This is why the Apostle Paul writing to the Romans says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that shall be revealed to us. So in the midst of your difficulties, brothers and sisters, take heart. God is at work in you, correcting, constructing, using you to glorify himself. And one day, he will take you to that place where sorrow and pain shall be no more, where he himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And for that we say, thanks be to God. Amen. We'll see you in church.